Hey, Under the Arch listeners, Blake here. Wanted to drop a quick note about the episode that you're going to hear. We initially recorded this conversation in April of last year, April 2021, as what we thought was going to be the, the launching pad for season three. As you know, that didn't happen last year. So we're now really excited about uh, bringing this conversation to you as part of the 2022 season three. Uh, but you will hear some things that that were happening around this time last year, some notes about the people's plan, some references to coming back. So just wanted to provide a little context for you. But we're really excited for you to hear this conversation and hope you enjoy it. We have come so far, so far Hi, Kayla Reed. Blake Strode, we're back. We are back. Can't believe it. Back and better for season three of Under the Arch. You remember the tagline? Under the Arch is a podcast. <laughs> and we discuss the issues facing our community uh, and the folks fighting to transform it. I remember it because I wrote it. Nailed it. Nailed Thank it. You. Thank you. <laughs> um, Nice yes. to see that your fist of humor didn't get lost in the pandemic. Of course um, not. We are back with season three, which is a feat um, because yes. it's been, well, if you didn't know, um, in January, we came back from a little uh, winter break and we released mm-hmm. the People's Plan. That's right. The People's Plan is a visionary uh, policy document, a proposal mm-hmm. um, that seeks to mitigate harm and transform systems for uh, folks in the city of St. Louis. And we've been working uh, with our 40 partner organizations to realize that plan. And growing, 40 and growing. Yeah, so you can find that at peoplesplanstl.org. We did that. That's really, mm-hmm. I think Yeah, that was pretty big. I think we'll probably be talking about various portions of the People's Plan over the course of season three. That's, that's a really exciting, um, big collective movement with lots of people doing important work in the St. Louis region focused on transformation. Um, so yeah, that was a big deal. Yes, very, very. Yes. And you know, when you, when I think about uh, the political landscape um, and the, the, the power of this moment, I think about the story that we get to tell, right? And the stories that have mm-hmm. been told um, about the, the, the black movement, black resistance in the city of St. Louis not just in the last seven years since the Ferguson uprising, but over many decades. And that Mm -hmm. this is a culmination of deep organizing, deep relationship building um, and and political struggle. And when I think about where we are now, um, it is, you know, it is is proof that um, when we allow organizations to set forth visions the power is possible, you know, power is possible. And so I'm excited yeah. that we get to tell that story. And I'm excited today we actually get to talk to one of the most yes. amazing storytellers in in our region. Yes, yes. And an institution, that? that was beautiful. That was beautiful. Truly an institution in our region for so many reasons. Um, you know, if you grew up in St. Louis, like as, as a black kid growing up in St. Louis, I didn't know that many other St. Louisans names. But I knew this man's name. Everybody knows the name Donald Suggs, Dr. Donald Suggs, who has been the longtime publisher uh, of the St. Louis American, which is also itself an institution in the St. Louis region. Um, He has been leading that that, uh, singular uh, media outlet in the St. Louis region um, for decades and has had so much impact on our our public dialogue and on our understanding on a range of public issues. Um, And we are privileged to have gotten to know Dr. Suggs um, somewhat over the past few years. And and we're so, so happy and lucky to bring him on for our very first episode of season three of Under the Arch uh, and just cannot wait to talk to him today. So Dr. Suggs, thank you so much for being here and welcome to Under the Arch. Welcome. Well, thank you for having me, although I think that was an over generous uh, introduction. I think uh, you would have some dissent 
Wait, wait, thank you very much. Those dissenters aren't here. They're not welcome here. We always name the podcast after the episode, but I do think, you know, there there is this really amazing through line that um, your leadership and the St. Louis American has told the stories of our movement, of our history. Mm -hmm. And I just want to, while we have you here, because, you know, Action St. Louis actually um, chose you to profile during Black History Month as one of uh, the most, you know, a very brilliant person in St. Louis. Um, And just want to profile that you were inducted into the Missouri Public Affairs Hall of Fame in 2014. Uh, You were active in the civil rights movement in the 60s and 70s, serving as the chairman of the Poor People's March on Washington in 68. Um, You are, uh, it says later you became the founder and chairman of the African Continuum organized to bring serious non-commercial African-American artistic endeavors to St. Louis. Um, long-term president of Alexander Suggs Gallery of African Art based in St. Louis and New York City. Founding member of the Center of African Art, now the Museum of African Art in New York City. Um, you've served on the St. Louis Art Museum Board of Commissioners uh, and you have several um, honorary doctorates from Washington University, UMSL, Harrisville, and St. Louis University. And so just want to like, to honor how much of a contribution, how much brilliance you just are. And I'm very grateful that you joined us here. And I know you're super humble um, and that's really nice, but you're also really amazing. So <laughs> I love you. And I know yeah. that we just really started talking, but I, have always for many years have told Blake I wanted to meet you and he just never would invite me to <laughs> here um, we go. Here we go with I'm it. So glad that Not you're here true. now. And I yes. um I'm I'm very grateful to have this conversation with you. Yeah. So well, can, can you course, sorry I'm go pleased to be here and of course your generation that I admire so much and I hope in our conversation we'll be talking about what's unique about um what has happened um in your mm-hmm. generation. Because as you noted I, I grew up um um, in, in the 1960s. I'm not a native of St. Louis. Um, I've lived most of my adult life here. However, I grew up in a factory town outside Chicago. Um, and you don't have a real sense about your growing up until you're away from that place. Um, and I would say the closest example would be not, I grew up spending my summers in Chicago, but I'm very much a product of a factory town. Um, 75% of the physical location footprint for the city um, was um, industrial, Mm. which means uh, when I was in college, I was five foot nine. And um, if I had not had all that pollution in my lungs and all that, I probably might have been six feet. Um, I'm making a point that we grew up in very um, challenging situations and there's no accident. My parents, uh, like so many uh, black people in Northern cities uh, were part of this great migration after the first world war, they were looking for jobs and many of them chose industrial places. Some came along where the railroads came along and so many stopped in St. Louis, East St. Louis. Um, and many, in my case of my mother, um, I don't want to digress too much, but I think this is important because this is what forms you. This is how you come to be who you are. Um, my, I was very proud. My grandfather and his brother were ran out of Mississippi because they were troublemakers. I love it. They were troublemakers. And uh, they brought their family first to, to Hope, Arkansas, where they spent a few months and then they went up to what is East Chicago. East Chicago, as I say, is a factory town. I, uh, I mean by a factory town, I mean it's, it's, its activities are pretty much controlled by the, the factory, um, the, the huge company that hires most of the employees. Um, and um, unlike East St. Louis, um, the unions did not refused black workers who came up from the South, who were brought up and who were given jobs intentionally, presumably to separate the two groups. I mean, what happened in East St. Louis is uh, the the union there, rather than 
pay attention to their people who really were responsible for their work conditions. Uh, East St. Louis, I know how familiar you are with the story of East St. Louis, but that's really a classic example of a town that really um, was very, um, uh, a classic example of how uh, workers have been exploited. And of course, the white workers were taught that uh, their problem was these uh, invaders coming from elsewhere, coming from the South to challenge their jobs. Their problems, rather than organize black workers, they would have had a united front to confront the real oppressors, the people who were exploiting them, many of them based in New York and other places. Uh, another big difference was that my community was so, that my town city was so small that there could not be separate school districts. Taught me a very valuable lesson about, about human nature, human beings. Um, so rather than two separate school districts, um, we were all, all of the kids and we were all basically from immigrant families with a handful of folks from the, uh, who were uh, the sons and daughters of uh, middle level uh, factory workers. So as a young boy, I grew up in classes that were very much integrated with, you know, as my, like my family, Blacks from the South. Um, my father grew up born in Indiana, but grew up in Kentucky. My mother, of course, I said earlier, um, grew up uh, as a young girl, very young girl in Mississippi. And then, um, so, and then the rest of the groups were basically Eastern Europeans, first generation you know, from Eastern Europe. Um, and um, we had a number of, excuse me, from people from Mexico and Puerto Rico. So I grew up in my classroom with a very diverse group. Yeah. Another issue that had great influence on me, um, apart from my family, was the organizing that was going on. Mm -hmm. These were primarily you know, left-wing organizers, probably communists, most of them from, from, um, from New York, from Brooklyn. And so they gave us some sense of why our circumstances were what they were. I had a father who was, personally, he was a brilliant man who went to the third grade and explained, helped me understand why my father, who had this incredible mind, only went to the third grade. Um, so. Um, I think that that's really, um, I think about, you know, my, my grandfather only went to the third grade um, and he's from rural Arkansas, um, right on the other side of uh, the Delta of Mississippi where my grandmother's from. And, um, and yeah, they, they migrated up to St. Louis in the, uh, in the fifties. Um, my, my dad was the first child born here. Uh, they had three children. Um, so they, they came up in like 55 and her sister went to Detroit and some of his brothers went to Kansas city and some of his other cousins went to mm -hmm. Indianapolis. And so our family reunions would kind yes, of bounce around in to Midwest, the Midwest. Yes. Mm -hmm. In Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, they came from North Carolina and places like that. And I, you do, do see some differences, um, culturally and, um, depending on where they came from. But um, yeah. I think that um, what strikes me is um, the way even all the systemic anti-racism that we know about, it's not manifest in quite the same way every place. Mm -hmm. uh, like mm -hmm. my best friend in, in junior high school, um, the fellow named Mike, Mike, uh, Donald Peters, yes. Donald was the smartest kid in the class. He and I actually started a newspaper together. Huh. And um, of course, when you get to teenage and puberty, then when the, the sexes, that became a much more strained kind of situation. But the point is that I didn't look with white people as um, in some kind of way superior because you know what this system is sought to do is to treat us as the other as the inferior mm -hmm. other, it also allowed you to have the opportunity to express yourself differently because culturally, you know, 
being a man of a, a smaller person, um, you had to learn to conform because you know mm -hmm. the rules were not were not very flexible. <laughs> you know, you, you had to have some right. grit. <laughs> they go right. take your lunch every day, right? <laughs> <laughs> can, can I ask you to expound on a piece of that? Because I've I've heard you um, and love listening to you talk about the sort of uh, class and, and racial politics that formed you. Um, I think this is the first time I've heard you say you started a. Did you just say you started a, a newspaper with your friend in junior high? Yeah, Donald. Uh, it was called the Galloping Gossip. I was always. You know, as I said, we were we were working poor. My father had a job. It was a very menial job. And I admire my parents, you know, more than I can tell you, especially the older I get, the smarter they are and what extraordinary mm. people they are. And it just, you know, it, it affirms your belief in your people. I would say two ex life experiences that have helped me affirm because, you know, you're bombarded with Western culture and they show you. And so it's, it's hard for you not to have a strong sense of self. Uh, but I would say uh, my parents and their human qualities, my father's brilliance, my mother as an absolute caring, totally devoted mother, and the sort of, in some ways, my extended family as well. And the second thing is my first time in Africa. You know, I, my first time to Africa, to West Africa, uh, was... Uh, to Abidjan. Now, if you've been to Abidjan, it was kind of a version of a European city and all that. And that was okay. You know, they're just showing me, see, we're not all, it's, we, have, we have skyscrapers and all that. But what was the most moving for me was when I went to the village and I saw myself in those people and how warm and how welcoming, how cordial. Mm they were. And so as a black person, because remember now, growing up as I did, you know, trying to move away from you know, your working class, you know, destiny to go to the steel mills and get a job there. Um, I was the first person in my family to finish high school that we know about. And um, so when I went to college, it was all, I guess, an attempt to become professional, upper class. It may be difficult for this to be relevant for you as younger people, but um, that was, you know, a feat back in the day. Now, you know, college tuition wasn't what it is today, but trust me, you know, I had to do some very menial work and, you know, um, they had a work study program. And so, you know, you had to do some, you know, cleaning up some, some scrub some floors and cleaning some toilets, but that was okay. I had a pretty good work ethic, but um, um it was a, a dramatic shift for me. Um, you know, it, uh, college was great for me because it was the best experience I'd ever had in terms of the amenities available to me, you know, the, the plumbing and all the things that I wasn't accustomed to any of that. <laughs> um, but that's not, in my view, what is the biggest problem for a an oppressed people. The biggest problem for an oppressed people is your sense of self. Mm. You overcome that and that's what I admire very much about your generation. Separation, and I know I'm digressing, but maybe we should get back to a more structured kind of comment, but to see what has happened in St. Louis, because when I came here, um, I came here initially, which is kind of interesting in itself. Um, I went to college, I went to dental school, which I found out was not a very interesting or good choice for me, but by the time I realized that I was too far along, so I went on it. <laughs> and so it was always, I always had mixed feelings about, I don't want to spend my life working with people. My oldest an honorable profession helped me raise my family, but it wasn't what I wanted to do in my life. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, I came to St. Louis. I was, I was always a big knee. Because uh, remember what shaped, and I'm digressing a lot, but I just want to get some sense about the formation of a life of an ordinary person. We're not talking about somebody extraordinary. My father had an extraordinary mind. My closest friends are extraordinary. They make things. They make paintings. They make uh, plays. Uh, they write books. Um, they are, um, for the most part, uh, very uh, talented people. Um, I was, um, as a matter of fact, there was the epiphany in my life. And I'll get to that in a moment. 
except to say when I finished dental school, I wanted to do something besides be a regular dentist. So I had this uh, internship uh, at two places, Philadelphia and also New York. Well, I was a big New Yorker file because in those days, when the politics was not very well defined, I still had all these left-wing ideas, you know, someday, but that was all um, abstract because there was really nothing going on. So the most important expression of that, of those views, of those um, aspirations were musicians because they seem to be, first of all, rebellious, particularly ones I was most attracted to. They were not playing music inside any kind of tradition. They were not entertaining. They were much more hardcore. Many of them had very you know, troubled lives, but I just, these were, these were my heroes. Um, and um, so when I was on my way to New York, which is the you know, most desirable place in the world, right? All the music, all mm -hmm. the culture. Right. Uh, and I came over with a friend of mine, my close friends, who was uh, in medical school um, at Indiana University. And his father was in the first class uh, when Humber Phillips Hospital opened in 1937, ancient times. Mm -hmm. And I saw black physicians with white coats, presumably in charge. Now they were not totally in charge, but to some extent they were. And then for me was like, again, this is, I cannot believe I'm gonna come here. The program wasn't very strong. Uh, so I came to St. Louis. Now, when you, at that time, Homer Phillips Hospital was the epicenter of what was called at that time, though you all know, that was an area of St. Louis that was pretty. And so I, that's what I knew about St. Louis. I knew about that. I knew about Eastern Avenue where there was music every place. And I was telling mm -hmm. you, I was very much formed by musicians. So I could walk out of the hospital, walk two or three blocks and um, hear music. I mean, I mean, first rate, you know, I was impressed with St. I didn't know where St. Louis when I came to St. Louis, quite frankly. I came here from Homer Phillips Hospital. I only mm -hmm. knew they had a baseball team and they were down south. <laughs> but I came here and I said, this music's incredible. Like these blues singers and... <laughs> Uh, there was jazz and um, um, the brothers wore some hip shoes, you know, Stacy Adams and you know, well, this is what this is happening, right? Uh, so I stayed here for two years. Um, and so it turns out my lifelong friends and I have been people who are what we call, what I call, what they call themselves makers. Um, and it's been, you know, real, uh, very fortunate for me because they tended to be better informed and they had some very strong politics. Um, and I could go into some detail with that if we had more time, but, um, so. Well, you know, I miss the East Coast we, now. we definitely have more time. Okay. But we have yes. to take a little bit of a break. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm I, sorry. No, no, don't. <laughs> no, no. no here, but. The, the, the beauty of this is I started the episode being like, oh, well, maybe we'll talk about, you know, what it means to be a storyteller of a movement. But you said a quote that I love um, that I want to talk more about is this formation of a life, right? Like where you've gone, what you've done. And so we're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back with Dr. Suggs to talk about the, the rest of this beautiful story that is the formation of, of his life. Um, you're listening to Under the Arch. We'll see you on the other side. If that can't happen, I don't want to live this life alone. I go for life, the goal's in sight. I've yet to reach it, but I'm moving so precise. I do the job, double shifts and overnights. It was crowded at the bottom where I spent my coldest nights. I go for life. And I didn't let too much slide A schoolboy, I never tried to be the tough guy No mama moved us out the hood despite her efforts It's a rough life No DMX or BMX, it's still a rough ride And on the way I had to cut ties They never liked me and they wish I gave why? It's bigger things I'm trying to understand They said George stood his ground but he was chasing after man Then they murdered Sandra Bland and summed it up as happenstance I got hands for Darren Wilson if I ever get the chance Army guns for the fam's sake, feeling like I'm Nando Can't tell a cop I got it, I might end up like Philando They hit him five times with his baby in the backseat 
The cop is free, but it was murder if you ask me As a black man, I wake up and I roll the dice Can't guarantee tomorrow, so I go for life Hope you enjoyed that STL Music Minute. The song is called Go For Life by Karan DeMarco. And Karan is on social media at Karan DeMarco. That's K-A-R-O-N-D-E-M-A-R-K-O. And his latest project, Hard Feelings, is available for streaming on all platforms. I'd love to know, you know, like why um, you, you came back to St. Louis you know, dentistry was like, it, it, it put, it put the, it put food on the table. You raised your family, but you couldn't quite shake that story of starting a paper in middle school and ending up being the publisher of the St. Louis American. So can you, can you speak to your passion for storytelling and why you, why you chose to take on that mantle? Well, that's, that's also another troubled industry. You know, they had seven or eight black newspapers and the prominent newspaper was a paper called the St. Louis Argus. Mm-hmm. And there was a St. Louis Sentinel, a guy named Howard Woods. And the third was the St. Louis American, quite frankly. It was never. Those were all black papers. Yeah, but there were more than that. Argus the Sentinel. Six or seven. You know, wow. Yeah, there were six or seven black newspapers. Because remember now, during segregation, it's almost like restaurants and uh, a lot of the things that one takes for granted, they were in the black community. They don't exist today, but they existed back in the day. I mean, um, you know, it was fairly self-contained in terms of retail operations. Not all of them Black-owned, but you could pretty much, because the society was segregated. You know, when I came back to St. Louis, um, the only place you could sit down in a public restaurant was in the train station and at the airport. Otherwise, mm. no. The movies theaters were segregated. Um, so you had a, the Black community had developed an awful lot of uh, of these, at least these everyday needs, uh, cleaners and and uh, your physicians were black. Um, you know your um, black uh, lawyers were that relevant in those days, mm-hmm. um, but it was pretty much a black community. It was much more self-contained. Um, so uh, it, it was uh, the environment was very different to what you see today, where you've got the black community itself is very much split because of more than a handful of black people now see themselves in terms of their in quote class privileges than they do as black people unless it's something at a very lofty level they'll vote for Barack Obama mm-hmm. but they won't get involved with <clears throat> what they're trying to do is show that they're not like you know if you want to move ahead in the corporate world you have to show how much how unlike you are to them. Mm-hmm. It, you know, they don't, I don't think it's a conscious decision, but it's mm-hmm. how well assimilated you are. And uh, this love for one's people that some of us feel deeply, mm-hmm. deeply, deeply, um, they don't have that because, um, you know, you go to these schools, you're bombarded with the notion of white supremacy um, and you internalize a lot of that. One of our parts of our struggle is that, you know, to be successful in the United States, um, or certainly in the corporate world, is to show how well, you know, how assimilated you are. And so that has to do with, and over time, that, that really undermines a people, because our great strength is our numbers. Mm. Um, and when you start to separate black people in terms of what their preferences are and what their interests are. So now they're reminded every once in a while that, um, <laughs> you know, that's what these police killings show you is that, hey, guess what? Mm-hmm. But it, it is, I mean, you know, you, you can live in Chesterfield. You don't have to live, you know, right. North Market. And um, right. so I think that people, um, you know, you know, human nature is what it is. Uh, I know you all are well read. You've read, you know, what our, what the thinkers have told us about why people separate themselves and how people, you know, have an affinity to be gathered with like-minded people, whatever that happens mm-hmm. to be. Yeah. So a lot of what was very uh, intact black culture has been very much undermined because of this. Um, 
there's just some some flexibility for for black people. Uh, mm-hmm. As I said earlier, when I came to St. Louis, you couldn't, you know, they, they were segregated. You couldn't go to a picture movie a theater uh, that wasn't segregated. And it was um, so since that time, um, even in Mississippi, you know, before they just simply said, you got to count the jelly beans in a jar. Now they just say right. make it hard for you to vote. Right. You know, right. I think about, I think about um, this this example that you are giving around um, the 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 way our culture and our people have maintained, resisted, persevered, grown, challenged um, white supremacy, and and that the American um, since I was a child has always been you know the only paper in my lifetime that has reflected culture back to me, right? Where you tell the stories of um, the moments that are really important um, to black people, right? Like um, the things that feel significant to our existence in this place, uh, the Mayday Parade, the closing of certain businesses, the political um, victories, and, and, and in recent times, the and it's not just reflecting back, but it's it's introducing this analysis that you're 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 holding, right? This how class and race and gender create um, dynamic um, realities for for our people, and how we how we think about um, how we think about those systems and how we challenge those systems, just in the in the stories we tell, in the history that we keep alive. Um, and and the, and the ways in which we we lift up those stories of resistance and and resilience, and so I just think that that you know um, that to me is important. I didn't know that there you know people are like oh the American is the black paper. It's like no the American is the paper for people who who see who pick this up at the grocery store at the at the local uh, at the corner store and they know on the cover it is the conversation they're having at their kitchen tables in their living rooms with their families about um, where we are as a people and where we want to be, you know? And so I think that that, that to me is just such an important, um, you know, the, the American is an institution and, and really you, you holding that is, is so amazing. Yeah, well, more than, I think <clears throat> what I was most interested in, of course, is being of service. And I think that comes from, I'm not religious in the traditional sense, but the whole idea of service, you know, as I said, we were poor, but um, we have to give a nickel to the, you know, that that whole thing. For me, uh, somebody says, well, this is a side, we're not, we're not talking about the side story. The story of the control of the St. Louis America is kind of an interesting one. It has more to do with uh, personal, it's not, not necessarily a lovely story, um, but um, ultimately, I was able to get control of the St. Louis American because the co-owner at the time, who was an affluent man, was absolutely convinced that what was it, could be my could be my personal uh, philanthropy was coming out of the coffers of the St. Louis American to build my brand. Truth be told, it was money coming out of that was the way I felt about community, the way I still feel about mm. community. And he could not believe that I was taking those kinds of dollars of my own and trying to build my reputation, whatever. So that's how we run, basically run control. He challenged it in a legal you know, litigation. Um, and he just was absolutely convinced that Suggs is skimming the money you know, for his own um, uh, self-benefit. Um, so, uh, but yeah, my involvement with newspapers is the whole idea, my interest in public policy, the things that dictate the circumstances under which our people are going to be raised. That I went to a public school that where I could read and write, and you know, I could do college work. Um, and again, I want to repeat, I'm not anything exceptional. I'm not being modest. I'm just maybe a bit above average in some areas, but there were many, many, many young people I grew up with that had over me on, in, in, in many, many ways. And you, as I may have mentioned this just late in one of our conversations. Um, you know who's quick and bright and sharp and charismatic and intuitive 
and talented and all that. Um, people who had um, a, a kind of intellectual bent and all that. They're all gone. They didn't have some of the, so a lot of it's by chance. You know, I mean, I easily could have slipped over to that area. Um, I, I think I shared this with Blake. My uncle was my uncle, but he was by the friend of my aunt. And he was, uh, I guess, lived on the edge at a hotel and all that. And I aspired to be like him because he knew all the, at that time, uh, boxing heroes were a big deal. This is, this is ancient history for you, but people like Joe Lewis and Sir Robinson, and they would come and he knew those people. And I was determined to go uh, to follow something, maybe go be a lawyer and then work with him. He said, Donald, look, you know, you don't have the grit it takes to be a gangster. <laughs> and this is gangster work. This is gangster stuff. I didn't have the, you know, the grit because, you know, it's a tough, it, 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 there's some glamour aspects to it. Um, it's like these young men now that go into the drug business, you know, it's not that unique. I mean, it's what the Italians did and uh, the, the Irish did. And, you know, you're in the Grimmigant and you're not going to work uh, in the factory and you're going to live by your wits. And I mean, I'm not right. endorsing that lifestyle, but I do understand why certain people are attracted to that kind of life. Um, but I just didn't have the, the grit. It took because you're going to have to be a little bit ruthless and tough and all that. But um, so, but I was, you know, I was very much influenced by that during my upbringing. So you went into publishing instead is what you're telling us? <laughs> I'm saying I went into publishing because I wanted to have a, that, I'm a, now I'm a mature person. I've got a better understanding of the world. And, you know, because um, it was always that struggle. I had a, I was always political, but I still wanted to, and then I wanted to be of service and I thought you would have influence on public mm -hmm. policy and public mm -hmm. discussion. I didn't like the idea of being running for public office. I didn't care mm -hmm. about that. I'm basically an inter introvert, but I yeah. wanted to be a part of something <laughs> that was going to uplift our people. Yeah. I, wanted, yeah. I, I learned to want to do something to uplift our people. So yeah. I got into the business. And of course, you're very um, um, you're disappointed because you realize the kind of constraints you have in mm. trying to run a business because there's, you know, you got to be solvent or, mm -hmm. um, or, or subsidized or, or you're going to be insolvent. You got to pay people a different wage. And so you run into the reality, the same reality that Charles is going to run into, you know, you have a mm -hmm. campaign and I think she ran a really great campaign and she was, you know, unequivocally a progressive candidate, but she's going to find that some of the constraints when you're in public office, because everybody's not as high-minded as you are. And some of these things are so deeply entrenched. So even as she goes to bring about change, and I don't any kind of way undermine you all's enthusiasm for the kind of dramatic change that is needed. But the fact we told is some of this stuff is so deeply rooted, you know, it's just, it's just, it's, it's very daunting. I so what I would say. I think that's a really, that's a really good point because a lot of folks in our iteration are challenging. We debate, you know, like what is the, what's the possibility of electoral politics and electoral justice? Elect the, the limitations of-, of Limitations, that. you said it well. Yeah, and, yes. and I think that there are limitations because it is the manifestation of a system that wanted to limit certain people, right? But um, also how do you, how do you not forsake a tactic, right? Like how do you not leave something on the side um, that that you could wield, like you said, in in love and in service to our to our people. Like I know I cut you off. You had a question. Go ahead. Well, it's okay. I mean, I, I I'm curious to. I definitely want to dig deeper on your thoughts on this present moment, given all of that historical context <laughs> that you just shared. But I'm also curious as you talk about what it was like um, coming into leadership of the St. Louis American and why you did that and what you were hoping um, to be able to accomplish through it, uh, I, I guess this is, a, this is a very simple question, but maybe a hard one. What do you, like, what do you believe to be or understand to be the responsibility of a black community paper like the St. Louis American? Because I imagine that is somewhat different than if I asked the, the you know, that was, the Post-Dispatch yes, yes. or something. Yeah, like I, wouldn't I wouldn't fulfill uh, in my profession 
Um, and I always had side businesses. <clears throat> I was in the art business and all that. And that comes about this whole idea, the affirmation of self. Um, because once the civil rights movement was basically the, the backlash against it, it was obvious we were not going to accomplish what we thought we were going to accomplish. Mm-hmm. We were yearning for some sense of belonging to something that we, we could believe in. And then, you know, things like communism, excuse me, by then we'd seen some of the issues in the Soviet Union. Um, we'd seen what happened in China. Um, and although this was a kind of a utopian view about how we had to deal with, with you know, the realities, like what, what the Chinese had to deal with in 1978 when they said, you know, we're going to compete. And they introduced a market economy, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you admire someone like... Um, like Castro, and then you see just how he's been boxed in in a certain kind of way. You see when um, Mandela comes to power in South Africa that he has to mollify his intention. He's a man who's been in prison for 27 years, and here are his captors, and he knows he doesn't know how to run a modern industrial state. So he can't have total upheaval because he has a modern industrial society and he doesn't know how to run that modern industrial state. Uh, Mao was not able to compete uh, with the industrialized nations of the world because you just can't make enough steel in the backyards, you know? So you, some of these things, and I don't want to undermine you all, you know, your, 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 your intention to stuff, because I think you don't want to dilute your, um, you know, your, your, uh, your, uh, your, because you don't want to, you don't know just, you want to go as far as you possibly can. However, having mm-hmm. said that, you still got to look at the Russian Revolution. You got to look at what happened in Algeria. You got to look at all these issues where you had people who really were um, concerned about the people mm-hmm. um, and how difficult it is to not just build these. To, to bring change, but also to sustain change. Um, so this, the civil rights movement, you know, enabled a lot of people, you know, a lot of people. I have a friend of mine um, and she was an above average student. She had full ride scholarships to um, SC, to Cornell and to Stanford. Okay. Yeah. And I didn't say she was a, a straight A student. So some people have benefited from some of the changes we've seen. Mm-hmm. Um, now that's, you know, that's, that, that doesn't change the fundamentals. So I learned a long time ago when I saw people whose circumstances were, you know, really, you know, some of these things that go on, it's debauched. I mean, I'm not going to defend their behavior. But the difference is I understand where that comes from. I understand if you grow up in that way, because the reason I wasn't a little gangster was for because I, I had parents that wasn't going to stand for that, right? I mean, I couldn't stay out all night. Right. And, um, you know, um, the certain things did not happen in the household. But my partners, you know, they were... So I think that, you know... So the practicality of bringing about change in a complex society like this one, I mean, who would have thought that a Donald Trump would have control of the second largest party. And that's just how deeply white grievance and white fear and white supremacy goes in this society. These mm-hmm. people in Missouri that are voting against, they can't, they, the money's there. They, they'd rather burn the money than expand Medicaid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Now you have to, still- how, how deeply somebody has to feel but tell them to operate in your interest in that way. That just think yeah. about how strong they must feel about, you know, white privilege, white supremacy, and all that. When they're not enjoying it, they're out there yeah. with their bellies, you know, big and their teeth rottening, and and they're still saying, "I don't want no socialism." Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So well, I, you know, I I find it interesting that. That's where your where your mind goes, because I, you know, I asked you about the sort of role of a of a black community paper and and you're um, brilliantly providing this kind of political analysis, um, global political analysis that um, one might think 
Yeah, that, that one might not immediately associate with something like a Black community newspaper. And yet, I think in the way that Kayla was describing the role that the American has played in many people's lives, part of what I'm drawing from that is that, you know, this is, this is much more than just kind of data collection and reporting out, that actually this is a, this is a political project of informing people around understanding oppression in a particular way, having a, a, a holistic understanding of their circumstances, placing that in some sort of context. Um, and I, I think that's what makes the American so special. That's what makes you at the helm so special. I, and I one of my favorite yeah. things is like, I've written for the American a few times and uh, Rebecca Rebus, when she was there asked if I, if I wanted to submit something as the political eye, yes. like for the week. It was the it was the most amazing <laughs> yes. experience of yeah. like it's one of my top moments where I was like no I I I wrote the political eye this weekend like, <laughs> <laughs> like, that well. was just such a, you know and and we're we're like nerdy and very you know we get into we think about these things all the time but that's how much um, my friends you know people other activists were like yo you wrote the political eye that's huge because we understood what Blake is saying this like this a vehicle for political education and politicization mm -hmm. in real time sure. and there's not more there than meets the eye but if you are a person who is attuned to that um, that that that's our intention um, mm -hmm. I, I think that um, um this is my basic philosophy. I believe that once people get a strong sense of themselves, they will know what to do. So I can't mm. say to you this philosophy, because when you live such a long time as I have, you come to be a little bit cynical about what's likely to build, you know, the beloved community that you'd like to see. Mm -hmm. But what you do start to believe is in the people. So I would say to you all, you all in particular, that what happened uh, almost seven years ago in, in, uh, was one of the most heartening experiences. You know, I, my friends, most mm -hmm. of them live on the coast or in more what they call more prestigious places. And they will sometimes, many of them who were born and raised in St. Louis, and they will start to, uh, you know, deny the, you know, how backward St. Louis is. And if you look at it in a larger way in terms of the economy, it is. But having said that, I'm gonna say, where do you think the most important political movement among black people? I'm not talking about uh, when the young man was shot in Florida and they had a name. What put mm -hmm. flesh on those words mm -hmm. was your generation. So I trust you all. You know, if we can get enough of our people, look, it always happens in any revolution, any major reform. It's not going to be the masses initially. It's going to be people who have a vision about what they see and what they want, because otherwise you all would be out trying to make some money. Right. You're smart enough. <laughs> Why aren't you out trying to make some money? Right. That's a good question. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it, that, <laughs> I mean I'm, I'm saying to you that. Um, uh but I trust, you know, once you all, the only thing I would say to young people like you is just, just make certain you do read some history because, mm. you know, whether it's, whether it's Du Bois or Shakespeare or um, all these things can change around us, but human nature is hard to get around um, and it's hard to get around mindsets. So whether it's religion or white supremacy you get somebody's mind and they're going to do almost anything you tell them to do. Mm. I mean, people will they'll forsake reason, uh, evidence, uh, facts, um, observed behavior. They'll forsake all that if you get them here. You get them here. That's right. They will, they will, they will try to climb the mountain. They'll, 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 They'll go out and try to kill a lion. See? So uh, that part, so I would say, and this is true, I would give this credit, one guy, one guy who was a good example of mixed bag is, is Jesse Jackson, who I've known for a long time. I'm not <laughs> dropping names. 
But Jesse was always among the people out there, even when he was saying what was the truth, he's always been a little bit self-absorbed. I don't know if you know Jesse at all, but uh, he, uh, but he says, look, Suggs, when you start making a difference, that's when they're going to come after you because, uh, you know, as long as King was talking about nonviolence and but the moment he started talking about getting some poor black folks and some poor black folks together, mm-hmm. you know, the moment, you know, and, and you had something like a coalition like that around Franklin Roosevelt, except the groups were very separate, but there was a kind of a shared interest in some of the changes that they made in the 1930s. You know, they pushed back against Social Security and Medicare. That all, all the fights you see against Obamacare, all that happened around Medicare. Now it's mm-hmm. so established. The same thing, I think that here's a guy who's probably a, you know, nothing special uh, in Biden, and he understands that you put this child credit in there, and these people are getting $300 a child. It's going to be hard for them to run against that once it's put in place. So here's not a particularly, here's a guy who, you know, basically a conservative Democrat, they talk about moderate conservative Democrat, who's come up with a policy. So uh, by calling it that, you know, and what, what, what Bernie Sanders was calling it was never going to pass. But by calling it that, and you know what it is to give $300 a child, you got a family of three kids. If we're able to get some kind of way to take care of uh, child care, these are, these are profound changes and gives people all you can give people is the opportunity. If you give them some kind of awareness of self, awareness of self, awareness of self. I have one grandchild and she's, she's a nice little girl, but you know, if I if looked at her objectively, I'd feel a certain way. Guess how I feel <laughs> about her. I feel deeply about her. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't care if she was a C student or a D student <laughs> or was autistic. I care mm-hmm. deeply for her. Mm-hmm. My closest friend has a brother who is Down syndrome. He's about 60 years old, which is way beyond life expectancy. He loves that mm. man now. So when you get people's heart, it's like we feel about our people. I mean, I love my folks. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't, I haven't seen them. Big love. Do wretched, awful. I'm not defending that, that behavior, but I'm telling you, is as as a black person, how I feel about them. And I don't hate I don't hate white people. I don't like these institutions. I don't know what's been done on behalf of it and all that. And I ain't interested in uh, on that level. However, so I can't tell you I hate white people because I'd be lying. I will tell you this: I don't like some of the stuff they've done in the name of race. But my folks, my mama and my daddy. I'm going to give you one of the highlights in my life. My kids were raised differently to me. Like, you know, poor boy, you know, send the kids to elite schools, right? You know, you know about mm-hmm. elite schools. Mm-hmm. Where'd you go to? You went to Howard. <laughs> you went to Howard, right? Yeah. Went to I Harvard. went to Harvard for law Harvard. school. Harvard. Law school. Harvard, I see. Well, you, you understand. No, I did. I was state school undergrad, okay, University on, of Arkansas, come on, come on, you know, Blake, just to, Blake, just to raise it back. But then my father who went to the third grade. Yeah. Never, never had any social status or anything like that. When she spoke about her grandfather, mm. man, there's tears coming down. It's like this, man. I think that that's so, I think that that is so beautiful because those, it's actually, you know, my, my grandparents, my family is why, right? I saw black people, um, I saw, I saw what they built, you know, against all odds. And, uh, yes. Um, and my grandfather, like I like your father, my grandfather only went to school to the third, to the third grade. And my grandmother, who's, you know, 88 now, used to say all the time, you know, I went from a cotton sack in Mississippi to a Cadillac in St. Louis. And that to her was the, uh, a testament of, of what her family was able to build. Um, and, and they kept, and what, what I remember growing up seeing, um, and my family's a church family. Um, my grandfather ultimately became a, a preacher, um, was that his understanding of why he became a preacher was to save his family. And, and for me, I think one of the main motivations of my work as an organizer 
um, is because of my family, because I've watched, um, you, you growing up black in North city, you see the many things. And once you learn, like you said, how it got to be this way, right? Similar to the, the communists that came from New York and, and explain your situation. Once I understood after Ferguson, after Mike Brown was killed um, in 2014, how it came to be, you know, like how North City was North City, why the highways run mm. the way that they run, why our parks look different than their parks, why our houses get knocked down. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't silence the politicization. I couldn't stop it. it like once it clicked, I was like, yeah, this is what I'm going to do forever because I can't turn mm -hmm. it off. I'm too mm -hmm. in love with my people to not fight for them um, every, every step of the way. And I think that that, that is the formation of a life, Dr. Suggs. That is yeah. that's the formation of a life. And we appreciate that. We appreciate, when you get, appreciate that. Yes. When you get my age, why it is so heartening to see people like yourselves um, who have options and who are committed to this work. Again, I'll, I'll go back to my friends who make things. I said, man, you got an IQ 160. You're up here making these paintings the last 70 years. Ain't nobody paying no attention to them. Or you're making this music nobody want to hear. But uh, this is what they do. This is what, So for you, this is your work. This is what you do. Yeah. What you do. And so yeah. uh, some of us who, are not, who don't have any particular talent and all that, but every community, I mean, most people are average. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, everybody keeps talking okay. about white exceptionalism. There's some really smart white boys, but there's some brilliant black people. Our problem is, the problem with oppression is, they don't know our community doesn't yeah. value them in a certain kind of way. I mean, the white community doesn't value the intellectuals in a certain kind of way. The problem you have is that it's so seductive. So, you know, mm -hmm. we lose a Bill Tate to, you know, because it gets a better offer someplace or some of your colleagues that have left for better situations material situation some yeah. way. So it's always hard to keep a core of people mm. that, um, you know, that are really um, committed and, um, and um, you know, and, and are not, sh un not shakable. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, it's so, that's why your, your work is so important. That's why your work is well, so important. Well, um, thank you for that. What I, what I will say by way of, closing us out. These things always go by fast. This is, this has flown by, but um, what, what I hear when you talk about that love, what I hear in Kayla describing her love for black people is, is Dr. King's co conception of radical love and how that, that has to be at the center of everything that we do. And one of my favorites, as Kayla knows, Dr. Cornell West always talks about love starting at home, that his love starts with black people and bubbles over to other folks. It's not that we yeah, can't yeah, love well folks, but it, yeah. It starts at home. And so um, we, we see that, we know that in everything you've done and touched in St. Louis. We're so grateful to you for spending some so, time with us today. So um, and, and, you know, I, this has been a space of love and I, and I have loved watching this overflow and, and excited for our listeners to hear it um, and just get to know you and, and the formation of your wonderful life just a little bit more. Um, so thank you again for being yeah. with us today. Well, let me say before we go that, that the pleasure is all mine. And remember now, I hope you'll emphasize, I want to emphasize an ordinary man who, mm. who cannot make any claims for anything special except to um, have the gift of having a um, regard for your people. And I, I, I think that... Um, it's just the best way to live your life. You know, my mother told me once, mm. you know, she's a woman of deep faith. And she said, son, to me, this is a mother's love. You will never see it the way I see it. Mm. Here's a person who is, uh, this is everything to her. This is, this is what she believes totally. But her mother's love tells her that you can't come to this truth that I know and I believe and I live by like I have. And so what I'm saying to you is, is if you're thinking about how you live, it, it's nice to talk to people across generations because you have to understand what has been the most satisfying thing. Is it travel? Is it no, no, no. It is the satisfaction that in some areas, whether it's however you, however you lived your life, that some things that you can say, I'm, I'm proud of that. Because remember now, life is a cycle. You won't be here forever. And to be able to look back and say it's a life well lived 
you know, even though you don't necessarily remember, because a lot of what you believe in may not be accomplished in your lifetime, but you were in the struggle. Mm-hmm. You know, you were doing what you believe passionately. And guess what? You touched others. That's what happened with the two of you. It's, it's, it's you all, not just what you do directly, but it's also the inspiration you are for others, including old people like me. When I see people like you, now you're trying to make uh, and I know there would not be there wouldn't be a George Floyd response if it had not been for Ferguson, and it didn't happen straight away. It was all they, they've, been, they've been killing black folks forever, right? Mm-hmm. But is what Ferguson is probably the most single important after Emmett Till, probably the most singular event is the work you all did to show what was possible. It's an inspiration to so many people. And although it didn't manifest itself straight away, there could be no, I'm serious, there could be no George Floyd response had it not been for Ferguson, in my view. It's just mm-hmm. from taking a historical view of it. Mm-hmm. There would have been the protest, there would have been some, but you know, this thing resonated across the world. And its genesis was up in North County. And what you all did. And it- I just want you to know that <laughs> yeah. nobody else is, Dr. Suggs. You are mine because I, I will fight for you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and okay. there will not be another Lots of love that and I appreciation to you. Thank you so much, Dr. Suggs. We're going to let you go. We appreciate you so much. So, so this is going to be an extended, this gonna be an extended version. We're going to let you go because it's probably. Okay, all right. okay, you all appreciate you, so much. Okay. We love you so much. Okay. Have Thank you so time. much. All right. Bye now. Bye. Bye. All right, Kayla, we are back here on Under the Arch. Um, love that man. I am love just that blown man. because how brilliant, you know, yes. and, and, and like 80, you know, he's 88. What uh, what a life to contribute to the with like in love and in solidarity and in deep commitment to our folks. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. And and what a mind. And what a mind, you know, that can move um, from subject to subject, that can place things in historical context. Um, I learned so much every time I talk to him. And you, you, you know, never invite me. But, you know, this is just. just I'm glad not you true. all got to listen to, you know, my longest conversation with Dr. <laughs> to date, but it will not be the last. Um, so should we, should we tee up a little bit about season three? Because we are coming in hot, you know? Sure. Yeah. How much do we know? <laughs> what we know is that we will be back. Yeah. We want to thank our team we will for, be back. for making sure that we debuted a season three. Yes. Um, we want you to go look up the People's Plan. We have new campaigns coming out. Um, yes. We are working. And yes. um you know, it's been a year since the start of this mm-hmm. pandemic and mm-hmm. um, we continue to work. Oh, I, I believe we're on the, you know, we're in the last stages of hopefully closing this workhouse. Yes. Um, and there's just so much that's possible. And I think that that's what I took from Dr. Suggs is that mm-hmm. we have work to do, right? And that's, We have work that's to the do. The greatest thing we can do is, is work um, on behalf of those that society deems the least of us, right? And, yes. and we know... Are, are 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 just so deserving of every of everything and so mm-hmm, i'm excited mm-hmm. for folks to come back and listen to this season excited and we've you know we've been brainstorming topics that really speak to this moment there's been so much in the education space we will be having an episode around education you know as we think about what could really transform the the most devastated parts of st louis we will be talking about reparations. We've been we've been thinking about that for a while. That's on the list. We'll keep talking about housing. Um, so you know, keep tuning in, folks. This is this is an exciting time. Yeah, um, yeah, and and I just want to say that there is something very beautiful about being able to sit at the feet of your elders. Yes. Like I feel yes. very, um, I feel very grateful to have spent 
the last uh this episode with dr suggs and just knowing you know how so much of the history of st louis predates our work right and and so Mm -hmm. to, to feel hope from from that generation that we are carrying the torch um that's what we're gonna keep doing. Yeah. We're gonna keep fighting under the arch. Keep carrying that torch. All right. As always, we gotta thank our teams, yep. our teams for making this possible. The team behind this podcast, uh, the amazing uh, Simone Palmer, who's who's here editing with us today. Z Gorley. Um, we got we'll, Nathan Quarta. We'll be back. You will. Sasha. Not here. Hear Nathan's name. Uh, Sasha on the action team. So thank you to our team for making this possible. Um, Thank you to all of you for listening. Please send music. We need music for the STL Music Minute. So, um, you know, if you got got new tracks out there, please send them to us. We'd love to spotlight them. And if you have any reactions, questions, responses, feedback, we'd love to hear it. You can find us on the socials. Uh, Our email is under the arch at thank you um, you can find us on social at under the arch pod um and blake now has a twitter oh so boy that's see, a, that's a whole different episode you can now see <laughs> uh blake and i and under the arch that's true thinking. um and you know he's very popular on twitter so if you haven't you should follow him at Blake's mm-hmm. Road One on Twitter because every tweet he drops, you know, it's <laughs> not frequent, but when they come out, they're fired. So you all right, of the 20 that have been dropped. Yeah, they've gone, they've all gone viral. Yeah. What a record. What a record. <laughs> um, yeah, so thank you. Thank you. And we will see you soon. Right here on Under the Arch.